this is author, blogger, producer, and podcaster Bobby Osinski. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, the U.S. recorded music business is surging. Can it return to double-digit revenue growth in 2023? From Music Business Worldwide, this independent artist has over a billion streams on Spotify. Ten years ago, a record label told him his music was unreleasable. Also from Music Business Worldwide, TikTok is under fire for some of music's most powerful players. Global music boss Ula Oberman says the future's bright and answers some tough questions. Tough questions? We got all kinds of tough questions to ask. And you are joining us on episode 148 of the podcast. Jay and I are really glad you're here. We are so glad that we're going to push the record button right about... Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, I meant to say we're going to push the play button. What the hell am I no, thinking? No, you push oh, the rainy. record. You don't push play. Oh. We push record. But we push play to make the the the, the intro start. Uh, okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> okay, it could be it, you. You say be, tomato. It's all exactly good. exactly. Well, it's a rainy day in Southern California in the summertime. It's very strange. June gloom. and we have literally been talking for an hour and fifteen minutes. Not uh, unusual before we even started the show. So uh, yeah, we got a lot to cover. It's good to see you, and uh, we got some fun stories. I'm really ready to to rock. Yeah, so much going on right now. Um, you and I were talking about a lot of the things that we've been uh, listening to, and you know some of these really great uh, Rick Beato videos we've been watching, and things that are happening in the news. But before we jump in, let's thank our friend Bobby Osinski for that intro yes. you know Bobby's an audio engineer producer musician author you know he's he's written over 20 books in the field of music music recording social media he's got all sorts of things that he works on and he's one of our favorite sources he is and much like Rick Beato you know uh, who's got a great video uh, video stuff on YouTube or video channel on YouTube um, Bobby was on my old show Sound and Vision Radio and he's one of those guys that 
understands music from the from the inspiration to the creation to the marketing to the sales. Yeah, uh, he's he understands the entire ecosystem, and yeah. there's not a lot of people like that. And I always enjoy uh, his his books and his his uh, articles that we talk about. He's just a super sharp guy. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he just sees really things in a in a broader way. A lot of people are kind of specialized where they know touring or they know, you know, certain areas of the music industry and starting from the creation of the music all the way through to some of these platforms that we talk about. Um, big fan of Bobby Osinski. So more to come. Uh, but thank you, Bobby, for that intro. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. He's a, he is a good guy and a very creative individual. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of things that dropped this week. Um, you and I, one of our favorite kind of weekly newsletters is The Ledger uh, from Glenn mm -hmm. Peoples. Always look forward to that on Fridays. Um, Glenn is one of the lead analysts on at Billboard and uh, a dear friend of ours. And he talked a little bit this this week about piracy. And, and I learned a lot. And he, he kicked it off by talking about film piracy and that, you know, yeah. that's increased by almost 39 uh, percent last year. Um, and that's according to Muso. And by 2027, the streaming video on demand business could lose one hundred and thirteen billion dollars annually from content theft. You know, and that's per that stunned by that. Yeah, it's a lot <laughs> stunned by that. Yeah. And they say that video piracy and we'll get into audio in a second. Video piracy is, quote unquote, on the rise. You know, as video technology provider uh, Cinemedia recently claimed it could, you know, could that threat trickle down to music? That's that's the question. He says more than two decades since a Napster led peer to peer file sharing movement gutted the music industry. Piracy just isn't a hot topic in the music business like it used to be. It's not even a mildly common topic, he says. <laughs> when discussing threats to the business, music executives are more likely to discuss newer, less defined issues such as generative artificial mm -hmm. intelligence technology that recreates the vocals of an artist without their permission, etc. We talk, of course, a lot about this. Um, and he said at the music business conference that you just went to, uh, the closest the discussion got to piracy was a panel on streaming fraud. Uh, but it's not, however, gone. According to research firm Music Watch, 55 million people globally obtained unauthorized music through a variety of means in 2022. TikTok, peer-to-peer -peer platform, platforms, stream-ripping sites, mobile apps, and transferring files on flash drives, among other means. One out of 10 U.S. internet users globally access music through file storage lockers like Dropbox, according to Music Watch. Mm. And I know lots of people who do that. So yeah. when you look at the numbers, do that too. doesn't surprise me. I do too. You know, Music Watch, or no, it's Muso, claimed that music piracy increased in 2022, and they tracked more than 15 billion visits to music piracy sites last year. And 7% of those, you know, were coming from the U.S., ranking the country third behind Iran, in India. But, you know, we talk about two different reports that, that you and I like to break down on this podcast. One is the um, RIAA, which is US. The other one is the mm -hmm. IFPI, which is kind of a global look. And they talk about the 2021 IFPI report, and that was called Engaging with Music. That showed that 30% of people surveyed in the 20, in 21 of the world's leading markets had used illegal or unlicensed methods to download music that year and 14% had accessed music on unlicensed social media platforms. 
Right. But as he as he ends this with saying, uh, while piracy is consistent and unending, it has become far easier to stomach since global music industry revenue started to rebound in 2015. But ah. it, it's still there. But those are some big numbers. Funny how and that works. Y- you know what? Everybody is always trying to figure out a, an angle to get free stuff. And but boy, the video numbers shocked me. That's yeah. unbelievable. So yeah, uh, not surprising. I don't know, not surprising. Um, hey, I also wanted to mention uh, you guys on on behind the set list. You had a very interesting interview you just did that's going to be dropping soon. Yeah, thanks. The uh, we we talked to Les Claypool. Uh, you mm-hmm. may know him from Primus or his uh, a lot of his solo um, acts that he's put together with some of the greatest musicians on the planet, but. I've been a, a big fan of of Les Claypool for years, and it was really great. Glenn and I sat down and, and talked to him about his set list, his tour, the musicians he's played with, and he's just, he's hilarious. He's got a great sense of humor. We all know his chops as a musician. Yes, um, yes. And for those that don't know, that's him who does the uh, South Park theme. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, as, as I mentioned to you beforehand, I did a, I moderated a, an event when they did a surround sound version back, gosh, it's 15 years ago now, um, with the whole band. And they're all like that. They're all super funny, super engaging, very uh, great sense of humor. And, um, you know, when you listen to a lot of his music, his, the humor comes out for sure. sure. But like you said, they're all great players too, man. Really, really great players. Yeah. So uh, we we just recorded that one. We've got a couple more that are going to drop pretty soon here. But uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, this coming week, we're we're going to sit down with our friend Will Page, and I'm really excited about this. Yeah, um, me too. He's he's uh, you know uh, former um, chief economist with Spotify. Um, he wrote the book uh, Tarzan Economics, which they've renamed Pivot, by the way. Same book, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, we're going to have a conversation with him this week and just kind of drop a special uh, episode. Um, he's got this new um, article out, and I'll, I'll probably mess this up, but he's talking about music markets are going, they're glocalizing, not global, not localizing, but glocalizing. And he said, uh, the English-speaking world better get used to it. In the age of streaming, national charts are increasingly dominated by artists singing in their own language. And he put out this paper. It was also published in the financial times. And I can't wait to, uh, uh, ask him about that and, and get a little clarity. Yeah. Really interesting, uh, topic. And he, as he says, recall how the more, uh, familiar globalization was supposed to work. Richer countries would exploit their first mover advantage over poorer ones, making the world flat or at least flatter as global brands like McDonald's and Starbucks bedded in across an increasingly homogenized society. Yeah. And of course, the same thing in the arts. And But as he says, so much for the theory and practice, we're now learning that the world isn't flat after all. In a recent paper, uh, Chris Della De Riva and I uncovered clear and surprising evidence of local music thriving in each country on global streaming platforms, a dynamic that didn't exist when neighborhood record shops and radio stations controlled what grabbed our attention. They're talking in the article a lot about British artists. Mm-hmm. and um, But he's just saying, but the Germans, French, and Italians reigned in their home markets to name only three countries. And of course, 
we're, we've talked about this a lot. We're seeing, again, lots of na- uh, local language artists being very successful. There's always been an element of that. Um, yeah. But it's really taking hold in a big way. It is. And, and you're right. There were a couple of markets that were kind of obvious ones like France and Japan uh, that were really strong on local repertoire. But this report, well, this paper uh, shed some light on a lot of different areas. So I can't wait to uh, dig in. Uh, with Will Page this week. So we'll let you know when we we drop that. But uh, I highly recommend his uh, book. Um, It was called uh, Tarzan Economics. Now it's called Pivot, Eight Principles for Transforming Your Business in a Time of Disruption. Really great read, but uh, um, stay tuned for more with uh, our friend Will Page. Yeah, but to, to also kind of talk about, you know, we, we mentioned Bobby Osinski at the top, but, you know, given how it's so much less expensive now to to basically make an album, to make songs, to record songs with all the digital audio workstations. You know what? It's it, it used to be, again, you know, you had to spend lots of money, go into a professional recording studio, go through the pressing process for an album. Now you've got these tools that are inexpensive to free. And no matter where you live in the world, if you are creative and artistic, you can create music. And there's a market for it, a local market. And it's exciting. Yeah. And sometimes a a global market is when we get into story number two, I, I found this so fascinating. Because, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor, right? Um, we've heard this story before, whether it's the Beatles being turned down, right? Or whoever it is, and then becoming famous. Uh, this has happened to a lot of people within the major label ecosystem where they've been turned down because that's not what they were looking for. And then they become very successful. So we'll get into that in our second story. But before we do, we have another special episode that we've already recorded um, with our friend Chris Castle, which will be dropping soon. So that'll just show up in your feed. It's a super interesting conversation with one of our favorite people on the planet. Chris Castle is a music industry advocate, attorney. Um, he runs the music technology policy website. Um, he's a, kind of our go-to guy when we don't understand something, you know, with the law <laughs> in music. Mm-hmm. Typically, uh, he's who, which is often yeah for me and me anyway. too. So, uh, watch for that in your feed. That's coming soon. Yeah, and uh, you know, I want to mention something also. Uh, you know, when we first when I first met you back at Universal in the very late nineties, we were in the Advanced Technology Group, mm-hmm. and there was a small group of us that were Apple fanatics. And we all bonded over many things, actually, at the time. But certainly Apple products was one of, at a time, and people forget that for a long, long time, it was not cool to like Apple products. Well, in the late 90s, they were just about out of business. They were on the cover of Wired Magazine, because I still have it, with one word, pray. And that was right before the candy color IMAX and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff and Steve Jobs coming back. The, The company was on life support. They were, they were, but they are certainly not on life support anymore. No, as I look, as I'm surrounded by Apple products. But uh, this last week, it was the Worldwide Developers Conference, yeah. and uh, a lot of interesting, cool things talked about there. Any, well, anything that you saw that you must have, I guess, is the question I want to ask well, before we get into the music. You stuff. know, I'm not going to pay thirty five hundred dollars for a uh, virtual reality uh, goggles, although. Would I love to? Sure. But I was really more excited about some of the announcements on the music side. And mm-hmm. I always check out Mac Rumors. It's such a great site. And there's a writer there, Mitchell Broussard, who wrote this uh, piece. 
And the headline was Apple Music on iOS 17 introduces crossfade collaborative playlists and new music player. And there were a few things we can just touch on really quickly from the WWDC, uh, which I, you know, everybody's talking about Apple Vision, but let's let's talk about some of the things on the music side with crossfade. They said that the first major update is the ability to crossfade between songs. Apple says will let you smoothly transition between songs so your music never stops. Apple Music iOS users have been waiting for this feature for a while now, making it one of the headlining additions to the music app in iOS 17. Yes, uh, but they mentioned anyone on the current developer beta should be warned that enabling crossfade under the music tab in the settings app will cause the entire app to crash. (laughs) Users are reporting that this happens every time they try to tap on the music tab in the settings app. But uh, hey, this is technology, you know, and it's it it is not perfect. Yeah. Uh, Also, some UI changes uh, similar to iOS 16 last year. iOS 17 is bringing a few slight tweaks to the user interface interface and Apple Music. Um, and I just lost my thing. Uh, the most notable update is found within the music player, which now features full screen animated artwork for albums that support uh, animated artwork. And with this change, these albums seamlessly blend into the bottom of the music player where the controls are located. This compares to the current iOS 16 style where the uh, album art is in a traditional square box with color matching gradient surrounding it. Yeah. And if you haven't played with, uh, Apple motion, Google it. Apple does this thing that's pretty cool where you can use what's called Apple Motion to have an animated album cover and an animated uh, banner across your artist page. Um, If you want to look at a quick example, uh, look up the rock band Ghost, look at their banner. Their latest album is Impera, and you won't see it just on the artist page animated, but if you click on it, then you'll see it um, animated. And there's some really interesting things that you can do with uh, Apple Motion, and that'll be part of what you just described. The other thing was collaborative playlists. Apple briefly mentioned in its press release that Apple Music is gaining collaborative playlists in iOS 17, but as of yet, there are not many details about the uh, feature. There was a screenshot, and you can see that there were four people working on a certain playlist together, and it shows a song and a profile picture of the person who added it, similar to how Apple Music's current Friends mix looks. So we're looking forward to that as well. Yeah, and lastly, a CarPlay update, a small update to their uh, with iOS 17. Using SharePlay in the car will allow all passengers to contribute to what's currently playing, letting friends and family add music to up... Uh, to up next or play pause and skip the current song. I don't want that in my car, by the way. I don't want my family and people to, it's, it's my car, damn it, and I'm playing when I want to play. All right, so, uh, all right. I will not be encouraging that particular feature to be uh, all right, that's, activated. That's fair. I'll, I'll give you that. Just say. Um, before we jump into our stories, I, uh, you and I, like we said, we talked for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes before we hit record. Um, but I was telling you about this site I came across because I was looking at... AI and how you can use it in music. And mm-hmm. there's so many different ways you can use it. And one that I found really exciting, cause you and I talk all the time about, wouldn't it be great if there was some sort of platform that really could learn my tastes and suggest podcasts and audiobooks and songs and albums that was really good, you know, sort of like discover weekly release radar on steroids, but for, for everything Anyway, there is a site called Songs Like X. And basically what you do is you, you just type in a song, 
by an artist and it'll build a playlist for you based on that song. And I tried it out and it works really well. It's called songs like X (laughs) try it out. It's pretty cool. I'm going to try it out. Absolutely. And before we get going with our stories, we do want to, of course, thank the wonderful sponsors that get us to the show every week. Couldn't do it without them. That's right. And uh, boy, we appreciate it. We sure do. Starting off with HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton. Thank you, Bruce. With help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Indeed, Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So yeah. big thanks to our friends at HypeBot and Bands in Town. And of course, every week I get to chat with... The not only brilliant, but also incredibly handsome Jay Gilbert. He is a music business consultant. He is the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with a couple of little startups called Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music. Uh, Thank you so much, my friend. The check is in the mail. Um, My co-host here, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records. You got to read that book. Warner Music, capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. We've been around. Yeah. We, 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 we get around. We've worked for a lot of people. Oh. Some nice, some not so nice. Oh, but can we you don't say that? Talk about the not no. nice people. Unless we've been drinking. And well, then we talk then about Then all them bets all are off. That's right. So let's jump into our stories. Yes. Jay, the first one from Billboard The U.S. recorded music business is surging. Can it return? to double-digit growth. Ah, this is a good one, written by our friend Glenn Peoples. Thank you, Glenn. Mm -hmm. This is super interesting because we talk about all of these companies who are investing in catalogs, you know, the primary way of hypnosis, KKR, BMG, et cetera, and they're based on projections. Well, some of the projections aren't really coming quite true, at least initially, the way that they had thought. And this is really encouraging, this, this story by Glenn Peoples, Um, that maybe things are going to be getting better. Why? Well, thanks to Taylor Swift, Morgan Wallen, K-pop, vinyl sales, and stronger streaming numbers, the U.S. recorded music business was on a hot streak, you know, the first 20 weeks of this year through May 18th. U.S. music consumption was up almost 14% compared to the same period a year ago. That's according to Luminate. That's a marked improvement from the 9.2% increase for the full calendar year 2022 and the 9.7% gain through the same 20 work period in 20 week period in 2022. Glenn goes on to say no single format can take credit for this year's improvement through the 20th week. Every format of sales and streaming had a higher growth rate compared to the same period Mm. last year. Luminate tracks sales and streaming activity, not revenue generated from the activity, by the way. Streaming's growth carries the most weight, however, because it accounted for 89.2% of total consumption, a slight increase 
from the 88.5% uh, in the prior year period. This year, on-demand streaming in terms of album equivalent units improved 14.7% through week 20, more than a 2 percentage point gain from the 12.5% growth in calendar year 2022. Ah, you just touched on something that I get a lot of questions about because we drop this quite a bit. You know, you just said in terms of album equivalent units. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, put together a number of album sales in a streaming world? Well, they have what they call equivalents. And I just want to walk through that really quickly. So back when downloads were the major configuration, uh, it, it was all about TEA, track equivalent album. And it was pretty simple. It was one to 10. So if there were 10 downloads that equaled an album, it could be 10 downloads of the same song by that artist, but it's 10 of those downloads that that equivalent TEA was um, for every 10, right? So then we get SEA, which is streaming equivalent albums. It's a little bit more complex because there's two tiers, but you know, the Billboard 200 includes these tiers of on-demand audio streams. Tier number one, paid subscription audio streams. Okay, this is paid. That's 1,250 streams equal one album unit. Now, if it's ad supported, that's a little bit different. It's more that equates to 3,750 streams equal one album unit. So that's how they're coming up with these album equivalent units that you just touched on. Interesting. Well, he goes on to say album sales improved 10.2% to 39.3 million units, a turnaround from an 8.2% decline back in 2022. Physical albums jumped 17.1% to 32.3 million units after declining 3.5% again last year in 2022. Vinyl LP sales increased 27.4% wow. to 18.8 million units, a vast improvement from the 4.2% gain Huge. last year. Yeah. And even CD sales improved 5.2% to 13.3 million units after declining 11.6% last year. Right. And that didn't get a lot of, you know, ink because of the fact that, you know, uh, vinyl albums outsold CDs for the first time since 1987. Right. So there was mm -hmm. another stat that Glenn points out that I thought was really interesting. He said that this year there were 13 albums that sold more than 100,000 units in the first 20 weeks. Last year, only six that same period. Right. And some of wow. that is due to, you know, K-pop uh, and that popularity, uh, multiple versions of CDs and vinyl LPs, you know, for those K-pop bands. Um, I found that really, really interesting. Yeah. Glenn says even the parts of the business in long-term decline are performing better, albeit still in the negative territory. In 2023, digital album sales fell 22.8% last year, but declined just 13.1% in the first 20 weeks of this year. Similarly, digital tracks were down 13.3% year-to-date after posting a 25% decline. So even year. these other areas that have been declining, it was less of a decline. So that's, that's good news. And then they talk about catalog versus current. And Glenn points out that there were games, gains that came from both, you know, current and catalog music, almost in equal amounts. Catalog accounted for about 73% of total equivalent album units. There's that term again. 
up slightly from 72.4% a year earlier, okay, gained 14.2% overall on the strength of 15.1% increase in on-demand streaming. So that was a nice increase for on-demand streaming. Current music posted lower, albeit strong growth. Total album equivalent units, right, rose 12.6%, and on-demand streaming improved 13.5%. Current CD sales performed especially well by gaining over 17%, while catalog CD sales dropped about 2%, 2 2.3%. So catalog vinyl LP sales rose 32.8%, exactly twice the growth rate of current vinyl LP titles. Wow, it's crazy. Uh, He says, though, this year's consumption gain cannot be attributed to any single artist, although the top artists are clearly leading the charge. Mm. The consumption of the top 10 artists of this year was 47.6% greater than the top 10 artists of the prior year period. Taylor Swift, this year's top artist, has 89.6% more album equivalent units than last year's top artist, Drake. While this year's number two artist, uh, Wallen, uh, bested Drake's 2022 numbers by 55%. Even Drake is doing better this year. His album equivalent units were up 7.5%, although he dropped to number three from number one. (laughs) Yeah, but he's still doing really well. And and Glenn kind of leaves this uh, discussion by saying that if the industry can maintain this pace through the end of the year, the momentum gained through week 20 should boost industry revenues and possibly bring a return to double-digit revenue growth. That's key. In 2022, the 9.2% growth in consumption, according to Luminate, came with 6.2% revenue growth, according to the RIAA. That's the lowest revenue gain since 2016, when the popularity of streaming helped reverse a 15-year industry-wide decline. Higher growth and the number of streams could be augmented by higher subscription fees, right? Amazon Music, you know, they hiked their rates in February of this year, and Apple Music followed suit in October. And Spotify CEO Daniel Ek, he's also signaled a desire to do the same, a change that could go a long way in keeping up the momentum. So good news there and great yeah. piece by uh, our friend Glenn Peoples over at Billboard. Very interesting. Very interesting. We will see if that continues throughout the year. But boy, that's pretty remarkable numbers. Those vinyl numbers, again, we talk about vinyl so much, but it's like, wow, unbelievable. You know what I'd like to see, Mike, is, um, and I know we talked about this a little bit before, but I'd love to see uh, what's happening in the used marketplace. I think it would be Mm -hmm. so great, not in the charts for the new stuff, but maybe a separate chart for used vinyl, used CDs, maybe even used, you know, cassettes. I don't know. I would love to see, cause that's such a robust marketplace. And I think there's some things we could learn from that. Absolutely. And you know, if, if you're new to vinyl, you may not know, but there's just still so many things that have not, that are not on vinyl that you still want to listen to. And so hence the used market and it's it, it you'd be hard pressed to find any any store well a lot of there are some stores that only have new but boy you know your traditional record stores all have an enormous usually uh, selection of used and new vinyl yeah. and it's so fun to go in there and just thumb through everything. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, our next story, Jay. From Music Business Worldwide, this independent independent artist had over a billion streams on Spotify. But 10 years ago, a record label told him his music was unreleasable. 
Oy. Don't, wouldn't you hate to be that person at the label that said that? Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, let's. Th- this is uh, the story is based on the podcast, the Music Biz Weekly. Um, I'm sorry, Music Business Worldwide. <laughs> sorry, Tim. Uh, the Music Business Worldwide podcast, and uh, which I listen to every episode, and it this one did not disappoint. Uh, Tim Ingham uh, interviews um, this. Uh, incredible musician uh bruno major and let's let's listen in to just a few seconds of this song before we dig into this piece while i'm watching you there's not many people i'd honestly say i don't mind losing too but there's nothing like doing nothing with you Dumb conversation, we lose track of time Have I told you lately, I'm grateful you're mine We'll watch the notebook for the seventeenth time I'll say it's stupid Cool stuff. Yeah, and I can't imagine somebody listening to this and saying, you know, this is unreleasable. Well, hundreds of millions of streams later, um, he's got sort of the last laugh. But what I think is interesting about this conversation between Tim and, and Bruno is how he built his own business on his own. Um, he and his manager work together. It's very collaborative. And they decided for them, a label wasn't necessarily the right place to be. And a lot of it's financial. He mentions, you know, why should I get a royalty, a small royalty on my music when I can get the lion's Mm -hmm. share of it? Because they're willing to do a lot of the things that a label does as far as marketing that music. Yeah, he goes on to talk saying he started out in the music industry by signing a major label deal with Virgin Records, then owned by EMI, uh, out of their office here in L.A. And he talked about his experience of being signed to and then leaving that major label as a young man, how that experience has helped fuel his career ambitions ever since, and how he keeps himself creatively motivated as an independent artist. Um, but you know, it's, uh, there are several stories like this and, you know, in, in, when we first got in the industry, you could certainly be an independent artist. I worked at SST records. They had, of course I was an independent label, but you know, it was, it was not an insignificant task to do that yourself. And, uh, so if you were, if you were on a label and were dropped or if you were, couldn't get a label deal, oftentimes you were stuck, but now there are options and, this artist quickly figured out his options and oh, darn, yeah, he, he's he killing it. Rolling. He's killing it on the touring, merch, recorded music side. It's exciting to uh, watch. Let's dig in. Uh, Tim Ingham is one of the best at doing Q and A's, uh, and this is no different. And I'll grab a few of these out of here. Uh, one of the things that Tim asked Bruno, he said, you know. It's probably intimidating. Music industry people are used to using jargon. You know, numbers are getting thrown around. What was your experience with that? And he said, to be honest, I was always quite clear-minded about it. I saw through the BS pretty quickly. I had meetings where I'd walk into a record label with a guitar, and they'd be like, oh, look, he's brought a guitar with him. That's so cute. (laughs) And I had people saying, you should be like this 
other male singer-songwriter. He said, I ended up signing to what was, at the time, Virgin Records in America, because they were the only record label that just said, you're great. Yeah. Here's a check. That's, I that's saw, all you want. You want... That's you want, want an evangelist. You want someone who will listen to your vision and help you make it a reality. And Tim asked him, you know, how did that make you feel? You know, for someone to say that your album was quote unquote unreleasable, you know, what was the impact on your ego and your confidence? He said, by the way, this is them after him signing and then, and, and his deal originally was that they would leave him to his own devices and not and not uh, meddle with whatever he was doing in the studio. And he said, but when he heard that, he said, it was brutal. It's a long way down from there. He said, I'm from a small town in the UK. Success for me growing up was becoming a professional musician of any kind. I would have been over the moon to have become a professional music tutor or lecturer or somebody who played gigs at weddings. My dream was just to make a living making music. But then you get offered a record deal and Virgin Records fly you over to L.A. to put you up in a five-star hotel. Suddenly, you're working with all these big-name musicians. I was working with my heroes on this album. Of course, I told everyone. My parents told all their friends. And they're like, oh, Bruno signed a big record deal. He's going to be famous. And all of that Well, that's what you... You hope that's what you, you know, that's the dream. And, and Tim asked him, he said, I'm not saying that bad deals don't still exist. Um, but that was like 10 years ago, a specific moment in time where deals looked a particular way and record labels arguably controlled artists chances of success much more than they do today, you know, via radio press, et cetera. Yeah, and Bruno said, I agree. I consider myself so fortunate because when all this happened, it was 2013 or 2014, I was right on the cusp of the transitional period away from the old way of doing things. You sign a record deal, the labels pay you for your album, they put it out on, on the radio, they pay for marketing and touring, and as a result, they take a portion of your income. That's how it worked. Now it doesn't work like that anymore. In his view, he said, the record deal system is still set up to serve an archaic system, which doesn't exist anymore, basically. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting how he decided to learn how to do all of this himself. Tim asked him, you know, how did you find the inner strength to say, you know what, I'm going to learn to produce. I'm going to get a laptop. I'm going to start over again. Yes. He said, people always say, if you want to be in the music industry, you've got to have a thick skin. <laughs> I definitely feel like I have a thick skin. Obviously, everyone's got different levels of opportunity and privilege, and I don't take that for granted, but there's definitely no way that I was going to live in a universe where I'm still, where I'm still sat at the sofa for five years, still hungover, and still with no career. Ouch. And, yeah. you know, he, he took the time and he learned logic, you know, and we talk about this a lot. The tools that now exist you've got a recording studio in your laptop. That's and right. that changes everything. And you learn about marketing and you learn about finances. In fact, Tim asked him about finances. He said, generally, when did you start to realize you could make a living from being an independent musician? Well, he was fortunate in the, he got a manager whose name is Sam Bailey. And he said, because when we started the, his first album, A Song for Every Moon, he was adamant that we should do it ourselves. I had no money at all. He lent me a few grand of his own personal money to put together a basic release plan. And he said we should do it independently because he believed that we could make more money if we released it ourselves through AWOL. 
And as Bruno said to his credit, it worked. So I take my hat, my I take off my hat to Sam for that one. Yeah, and yeah. you know, we talk again about that when you get somebody who who understands that side of the world, you handle creativity. It sure makes things a little bit easier. Yeah, it's a collaboration that he has with Sam Bailey. Um, and then, sort of finally, you know, this a couple of other things. One is Tim asked him about, you know. Other than making great music, what other factors do you think have been instrumental in getting you to this point of financial security as an independent artist? You know, interestingly, he says, I don't want to come across as somebody who bashes major labels because I think that that system is a fantastic when it works. He said, again, when it works. And there are artists who need a huge team, a huge machine, and a huge budget. For that, you need to be part of the machine. But in order to do what I've done and be part of it is to do independently. You have to be a specific type type of person. I do a lot myself, creatively speaking. I co-write, but I write all the songs myself. I produce it all myself with his producer. I play every instrument on those records. I mix the whole thing myself. And he says, I don't think everyone wants to do that. I'm not saying that that means that I'm better or worse than anyone else, but that's the way I do it. To do this independently, you probably need to have that kind of visibility, drive, and determination. Yeah. So, you know, that's good on him. Yeah. What a fantastic interview. Um, You can read it on uh, Music Business Worldwide, or you can listen to the podcast uh, interview. And again, the Music Business Worldwide their podcast. I never miss uh, an episode. It's absolutely fantastic. So great job um, by Tim Ingham and the team over there at Music Business Worldwide. Um, There's hope for independent artists. Well, and, and, you know, you and I both came up playing in bands as, as young people and into adulthood. And I, I, I don't know if you do this, too. I, I think back and what would have been like had had this system. Existed oh, yeah. One hundred percent. When I was starting out, you know, what are the like, systems wow. you think about? Is it like digital audio workstations? Is it social it, media? All of it. Is it all of it? Yeah. All of it. You know, and I even was thinking that when I because my first gig, as we, we've mentioned, was an independent label over at SST. Yeah. And that really opened my eyes. You know how Greg Ginn and, and, and others in, in, that were part of the team at the time, you know, they just they couldn't get a deal. And so they created their own ecosystem and figured out how to get records out to record stores. But boy, that's a heavy lift. It really is a heavy lift. And it's just easier now. It's so much easier. Of course, it's hard now to break through, but it was. It's so much easier now, and and uh, yeah, I, I think about that often. Yeah, so. me too. Fun, fun stuff. All right, another one from Music Business Worldwide. This was a really interesting one. TikTok is under fire for some of music's most powerful players. Mm-hmm. Global music boss Ula Oberman says the future is bright and answers some tough questions. And uh, yeah, those were tough questions for sure. Yeah, we'll we'll dig into some of these, but he's in a tough position. And you and I have talked to other people who are in tough positions. You know, our friend Garrett Levin, you know, from DEMA, who's stepping down. But it's, you know, he's basically defending the DSPs. And that's not an easy thing. And Ula Oberman, um, I've known uh, for a long time. I had a recent conversation with him. Um, sort of off the record. And uh, he's got one of those positions that is, it's tough. Um, People are taking shots at TikTok and we've talked about Rezo 
Um, we've talked about a lot of things that are happening with with TikTok, and there are politicians that maybe want to ban it. I think a lot of them have never even used the platform. There's a lot of misinformation, and we've tried to clear a lot of that up about where the information is stored, you know, what servers and what the Chinese government can get and what they can't. And there's just, there's a lot of hysteria and misinformation. And there are a lot of you know, financial implications. And as we'll get into here, you know, for example, Rob Stringer, the, you know, from Sony music group, he said, some of the short form video providers are relatively new. It doesn't take a scientist to realize that we're being underpaid by them. So there's a lot of these shots across the bow. <laughs> and, and really a lot of these people don't know what the economics of TikTok, TikTok are. A lot of that isn't public. Um, but it's, this was a very candid uh, discussion with Ola Oberman. Well, and I'm uh, when you're reading this and and hearing this conversation, you're also at least I'm also aware of, you know, how young they are. I mean, TikTok has not been around for very long, and there's you know as we saw because you and I were there when YouTube really started getting going. There's a lot of growing pains when when these platforms start mm-hmm. and. Um, it does take a while for them to get systems in, in order and for, for a lot of things to kind of settle down. And, and I, you know, I want to be cognizant of that, not to, not to give them a complete pass. Mm-hmm. But that is kind of the way technology works, basically, is you get it up and running and then you kind of fix things as you're flying the plane. Um, <laughs> but it is funny seeing yeah. a lot of these comments that, that – and nobody mentions TikTok by name – uh, like, like Lucian Grange said, I've seen this movie before. I know the ending. Uh, and you know, he, but nobody says you TikTok by, by name, but, yeah. uh, but there's certainly the implication of everyone knows who they're talking about. Right. Um, and, and so it's, uh, it is funny times. Um, but boy, they are a beast and they are, you know, and they're, and they're, here's the issue, uh, as we get into this, the discussion centers around two different things, kind of the, the pros and the cons, you know, um, the assets and the liabilities. For example, TikTok has broken many artists and has helped the industry, uh, well, help revive the industry in addition to streaming and, and lots of other things, but it's been powerful at helping the music industry get to where it is. So then you have to weigh on the other hand, well, is the music industry being properly remunerated, right? Is, is that revenue uh, commensurate with, with what it's doing? And so you've got both sides to sort of balance out. And the answer is not yet um, because it's in its infancy. You know, the, these uh, deals with the majors are going to be coming due soon. And then we're going to see some negotiations. But as you pointed out a second ago, this is, you know, all in its infancy, well, and they mentioned the, the key tension points, points, which is a great line, key tension points that exist today between ByteDance and the major music which companies. Which is the parent they company. Talk about, yes, exactly. And they, so they talk about the launch of TikTok's in-house indie artist distribution and service platform, SoundOn, and the fact it's recently started locking down exclusive contracts with successful unsigned artists. The fact that TikTok's in-house content ID equivalent isn't as thorough or advanced as YouTube's. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, TikTok's controversial recent test in Australia, uh, which saw the platform remove access to major record company signed music for some users and the industry backlash that ensued. Mm-hmm. And yes, the size of those checks landing on the doormats of major record companies and publishers, especially considering ByteDance's reported annual revenues of $80 billion. Wow. Now, remember, that's, that's, a, that's a big number. That's not TikTok. That's ByteDance. But still, yes. that is a big number. You know, there's a lot of other big talking points, you know, that they're going to cover in this uh, interview as well. We talked about Rezo. That's TikTok's sister music streaming app. That, you know, so far remains locked to three different territories, uh, India, Indonesia and Brazil. It's not yet in the United States, Um, but that's miles behind Spotify in terms of both global subscriber reach and in terms of, you know, basically brand recognition. Yes, exactly. Um, and then they go on to say it's been an eventful few weeks for Rezo. Earlier this month, ByteDance cut Rezo's free tier entirely, uh, making it a, a subscription-only platform. And meanwhile, last week, ByteDance's team served up a curveball, inking a trial, uh, a trial-exclusive TikTok test direct streaming links with Apple Music thing with Apple Music mm-hmm. that will see TikTok actively push users to that service instead of Rezo. When they watch a music-driven video in certain territories, yeah, that's we'll see how There's that goes. That going sounds on. really cool, you know. And sitting in the background of this whole narrative is actually the immense power of TikTok to boost the popularity of songs online. Let's call it what it is, right? I mean, TikTok itself claims that thirteen or of the four, 14 number one records on the Billboard Hot 100 in 2022 were driven by significant viral trends on TikTok. So this is what kind of gives uh, Ula Oberman, you know, the confidence while stressing the vast opportunities TikTok presents for major record companies. You know, he made the statement, if we were forced to take down a music catalog or part of a catalog, we're pretty confident that we could still remain a compelling service for our users. Well, you know, and, and (laughs) I know you've known him for a long time, but boy, when you, when you kind of, uh, I, I, as I'm reading this article, I wouldn't want to be in that seat right now. Uh, the, being answering all these questions and talking about this stuff, because some of these are so loaded and, and can be so volatile. And I, I kind of tip my hat for him seemingly just being calm, cool and collective through all this process. He's not new to the music industry. He comes from the music industry. He's not from a platform like uh, TikTok originally. So he knows people on both sides of the table. And that gives them an advantage because he knows what their needs are and what his needs are. And hopefully there can be, you know, cool heads prevail and we can use this platform to help grow the business overall and people get fairly paid. Yes. Uh, it starts by talking about that, ex- the uh, experimenting with linking out to tracks on Apple Music. And he said most cases of music discovery at this point start entirely or in large part on TikTok. So we have a lot of conversations with our partners, labels, publishers, artists, managers about how we can do a better job of linking everything together when discovery happens on TikTok. 
and we don't have our premium music subscription service, which is, of course is Rezo, live around the world yet. It's early days, but this deal with Apple is a nice move for, uh, for us to provide a link from the discovery on TikTok to the consumption and monetization that happens on other DSPs. It's still in a test phase. It went live in early May. It's in a pretty limited way, but so far, so good. We will expand and we're talking to other DSPs. Yeah. So very interesting. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Um, they talk about Boyd Muir, who's a CFO of Universal Music Group. Um, he recently told analysts that UMG was dead set on quote unquote right sizing, right sizing its deals with certain social platforms that use music. He was clearly talking about TikTok. Uh, do you? F- they asked uh, Ola Oberman, do you feel that your deals with the major music rights holders are right-sized today? <laughs> he said, yes, we do. The first point I'd make is that we're still in a relatively early stage of building our relationship with the music industry and its rights holders. And while I can't share any specific uh, financial payout numbers with you, I can tell you that they are growing a lot, as they should be. Another really important point, you can look at the value that the platform brings to rights holders in terms of the hard dollars that are paid out for music usage, or you can look at it in terms of the hard dollars that are paid out in addition to new business that you can grow, that we can grow, that you can grow together. I think that is what is really differentiates TikTok from every other service in music. I think that's a key point. And, and as we kind of get through this, there's a couple of other points I want to make. One is they asked him directly you know, about the the finances. They said, we know that TikTok writes advance checks to music rights holders. Um, You know, there's like a two-year blanket licensing agreement for music. Some have called for a move away from that into a set revenue share agreement where a certain percentage of advertising revenue is shared with the rights holders behind music in each TikTok video. Is there any desire to get to a place where you move away from just writing a check for an estimated amount of music usage and towards something more granular. Yeah, he said, our negotiations are confidential and in various stages, but without talking in detail about the structure of our music licensing deals, we believe our, we believe our core deal works well as it is structured today. But as we bolt on new areas of business, for example, commercial music being used in TikTok ads, if it's a transi- transactional use case, we should be able to consider paying that out via a revenue share. But with the creations and views that go into TikTok users, videos, it's a lot trickier to do that considering the way the feed works to even ascertain which ad revenue you might attribute to which use of music. Yeah. And let's just end this um, with this last question, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, they they asked Ola, um, last year in the annual Music in the Air report, Goldman Sachs made an estimate of what TikTok paid out to recorded music rights holders for the use of their music on ad-supported UGC, user-generated content, on the platform in 2021. That number, according to Music Business Worldwide's calculation, based on the Goldman Sachs uh, data, was $179 million U.S. dollars. And they asked him, what's your response to that number? And his response really surprised me. Well, you said we can't disclose our numbers, but that figure is not accurate. We anticipate that soon there will be a new Goldman Music in the Air report 
We'll see if they break it out again, but if they do, we're confident it will be a much higher number. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff going on with TikTok and these negotiations. Wouldn't it be fun to be a fly on the wall yeah. in those those talks? Oh my goodness! Well, uh, it's it, again, it's there's a value to having TikTok in our music industry, and my hope is that both sides can compromise and make it worthwhile because it certainly helps the artists that are being broken and having great streaming numbers based on their popularity on TikTok. And it's certainly helping TikTok and parent company ByteDance. So let's hope this stays uh, even and calm and, you know, calmer heads <laughs> prevail. And uh, I just think it's such a key part of our industry right now that I would hate to see it uh, get messed up. Yeah. Well, much to come and we will be talking about it more in the future. And on that note, we do need to wrap up the episode. So uh, we want to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, by the way, please just tell one friend. I know Jay and I would certainly appreciate it. We also want to thank our fabulous sponsors, HypeBot and Bands in Town. Big thanks to them all over there for making it happen with us. We could not do without them. And, uh, and of course, we really appreciate you listening in. So thanks for coming in with us today on episode 148. Jay and I will be back next week on another episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.